All right, so we're still looking at um, this little kind of mini-series that I've used to sort of help buy the time here, uh, this series through the doctrines of grace, the Reformed view of salvation. Uh, we looked at, you know, the intro uh, was sort of just kind of setting the stage, giving you the, the background of the, the history behind this, how this was a a sort of an in-house debate, if you will, between those who were of the Reformed Church and then those who had issues with the Reformed Church, those who had issues with some of the doctrines in the Reformed Church, who later became, uh, they were classified as Arminian um, in that sense. And then we looked at, um, a couple weeks back, we looked at total depravity. So, as we were looking at this, we were sort of showing you what, what the difference is between the Arminian view and the Reformed view. And it's centered around these five uh, doctrines, these five teachings that the Arminians had issues with from the Reformed uh, Church. Now, the Reformed Church, of course, they subscribed to the Belgic Confession, so they pulled these out of the Belgic Confession and said, these five teachings we have issues with. And then there was a... Church Synod, about 100 years after that, you know, the Belgic Confession in 1618, 1619, there was a, a synod in which they addressed the concerns of the Arminians and they um, rejected their teaching and reaffirmed what the Belgic Confession taught. And then they, they drafted a response called the Canons of Dort, which looked at all of the teachings. So the five articles, of course... Um, are now popularly arranged in the, in the acronym TULIP. So, of course, that's not how they're addressed in the canons. In the canons, they're reordered. They're ordered differently, but they rearrange it so you get the TULIP. And a few weeks back, we looked at total depravity, which teaches that mankind is born in sin, that we are sinful to the core, that there is... Nothing that we can do that can earn any kind of merit with God because of our sinfulness, our sinful nature being born in Adam. Uh, total depravity does not mean that we are as sinful as we could be. It uh, does not mean that we are all equally sinful. Okay, that, That's just kind of is apparent if you look at the world out there. There are some people that are way more sinful than others. Um, so that's not what total depravity means, but it does mean we are sinful to the core. It does mean that even our good deeds are tainted with sin. The, the things that we try to do to, to be good are, are usually tainted with some kind of sinfulness, some kind of selfishness, some kind of self-centeredness. However you want to look at it, we are totally depraved. We are radically corrupt, corrupt to the core. And then two weeks ago, we, looked, we started to look at unconditional election which states that God has chosen all those and only those who will be saved, and He does so unconditionally. He does so without conditions. And it logically follows. If you are totally depraved, there is nothing you can do to earn salvation. You have to be elected by God. It has to be done by, by God's own uh, action. It is, it is God who unconditionally elects. We looked at... Uh, various verses that teach that, uh, Ephesians 1.4, that teaches that the elect were chosen before the foundation of the world. 
Uh, Ephesians 1.11, that the elect were chosen according to the counsel of God's will. Romans 8.28-30, how the elect are chosen according to God's purposes. 2 Timothy 1.9, the elect are chosen not according to their own works. So this idea of unconditional election is that God chooses those whom He's going to save without anything that they've done in themselves. And then we, we went through Romans 9, where this is taught much, in my opinion, is taught very clearly in Romans 9, how God sovereignly chose Isaac over Ishmael, how God chose sovereignly, He chose Jacob over Esau, how God sovereignly shows His mercy on whomever He wishes to show His mercy, and then that in, in Romans 9, verse 16, you get this sort of clincher verse, in my opinion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And at the end of the day, we are the potter, or we are the clay, God is the potter. He does with us what He wills. Okay, and we can, we can balk at that if you want, but that's what the Bible teaches. God is the potter, we are the clay. We can, he can do with us as he wills. Now, there are some objections to that, and that's, you know, we didn't get to that last time, so I'm going to go over some objections on this. The most common objection to this is the view of foreknowledge, is the view of foreknowledge. So, the foreknowledge view, and I think this comes out of the fact that I believe it's in Ephesians 1, or maybe it's, no, I think it's Romans 8. Right, yeah, so Romans, again, going at Romans 8, 28, and 29 for the most part, where it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, uh, that he might have that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, whom he called, he also justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. So you get that phrase there, foreknowledge, foreknew. Okay. Now people will look at that, the Arminians will look at that and they'll say that what God's foreknowledge is is that God elects because he is God. He can look down time, he can look in the future, he can look at your life. He could see a point in time where you will believe, where you will accept the gospel by faith, and then in eternity past, he will then say, "I'm going to elect you because I force, I foreknow that you are going to believe." So he looks down the corridors of time, so to speak, and chooses those and elects those whom he foreknows, because the idea of foreknowledge is to know ahead of time. That's kind of what it means to know ahead of time, so he knows those whom he, who are going to have faith, and he elects them. That's what the Arminian, typically, the main objection to foreknowledge is. So God looks down the quarters of time, sees those who will have faith, and those are the ones he will elect, and the rest, well, because they don't have faith, they get passed over. Now again, I think if you go back to what we looked at in Romans 9, Romans 9 contradicts that. Because again, Romans 9.16 states, 
It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the foreknowledge view, God is not choosing you because you have faith or that you will have faith. God is electing you because He chooses to place His mercy on you. So this, this view is, elect, is, is contradicted by Romans 9.16 and other verses that, that show that God's election is not based on anything that He sees in us. Any work that we will do, any, any action that we will take. Moreover, this idea of foreknowledge, if you think about how the word to know is used in the Bible, we often see... You know, think about going all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, in Genesis 4, where it says, uh, and Cain knew his wife. What do you think that means? <laughs> that he just knew who she was? <laughs> right? No, he loved her. Right? He loved her. He knew his wife. It's a euphemism. They had sex is what it means. Right? The idea of foreknowledge in this sense, this idea of biblical foreknowledge is that God sets his love upon you before the creation of the world. He foreknows you. He sets his love upon you. He, he elects out of love, not out of anything he sees in us. He elects us out of love by, by that idea of foreknowledge. He sets his love upon us ahead of time. And there really is no explicit verse in Scripture that teaches this Arminian idea of foreknowledge that where God chooses those who will have faith in them, in Him. Now, another objection could come up. It says, well, what about those who are not chosen? Right? I mean, it seems unfair. That, that's the whole thing about Romans 9. When, when Paul is going through Romans 9... He's, you know, every point he's, he's coming up saying, well, what about, you know, is there injustice in God? Or is, you know, or the, you know that's not fair argument. And, and Paul, at some point, at one point, he just finally gets to the point, it's like, enough. You know, you just have to accept the fact that God is God and we are not. Right? Now, about what about those who are not chosen? Again, God's act of election is done in view of the fall. If you remember two weeks ago, I gave you those two big fancy words, infralapsarian and supralapsarian. Okay? The Belgic Confession, if you look at Article 16 in the Belgic Confession, it is explicitly infralapsarian. It says that God, in view of the fall, elects some and passes over others. So in other words, when God chooses... God is looking at the entire mass of humanity already with the fall in mind. And he... <laughs> it's a very stately ringtone. <laughs> he, is, he is choosing with the fall already in mind. And he chooses some... And the rest he passes over. So the ones that he chooses receive mercy. The ones that he passes over receive justice. There's no one who is not receiving injustice. There's no one who's being treated unjustly in this case. Except, you know, you've got some who are receiving grace and you've got some who are receiving justice. It would be the same thing as if, you know, a, a governor who has the, 
um, the authority to pardon criminals from you know death's row or whatever. He can go up to you know if, if there are, you've got ten death row inmates and the governor chooses to pardon three of them. That's the governor's prerogative. He can do that. It is within his purview, is within his authority to pardon some. And the rest, are they, re, are they being treated unfairly? No, no. They're, they're being punished for their crimes. The rest are receiving grace and mercy for whatever reason that the governor has in mind for that. Now, this is what God is doing. When he looks at us, he's already, like I said, he's already got the fall in mind. He sees sinners who are all doomed to hell. And instead of letting them all go to hell, he chooses and shows his mercy on some. The rest are going to receive the just punishments of their sin. So God's act of election is done in view of the fall. God is sovereignly choosing to grant mercy on some, and the others are being passed over. And those who do not receive mercy are not treated unjustly. They are receiving justice for their sins. So that's unconditional election and some of the objections that are there and answers to those objections. Now that's, so that's you, right? So T-U, now we're in the L of TULIP. Now just between us, when I was struggling through you know, the five points of Calvinism many, many, many years ago, when I was struggling through Reformed theology many, many years ago, for me the L was the hang-up. I don't know, I think most people get hung up on the L in TULIP. Most people would be TUIP if they had a choice, and they would just kind of reject the L if they could. But the L is limited atonement. And again, I don't like some of these titles for these doctrines, okay? It just because it you know, makes a nice little acronym like TULIP, it's not the best description of what this doctrine really teaches, because when you say limited atonement, it just kind of has a bad connotation to it. Limited, you know, limited. What is limited? Okay. Well, let's first define what limited atonement means. Limited atonement means that Jesus Christ dies for all whom the Father has given to him and for them only. Limited atonement means that Jesus Christ died for all whom the Father had given to him, and for them only. Now, what does limited mean? Because that's, that's that's, like I said, that's the word that gets me caught up a lot of times, and I think it's a lot of people who are new to this or, or un, who are kind of resistant to this. It hangs up a lot of people. We have to understand... The Reformed and the Arminians both limit the atonement. Okay? <laughs> so when, when the Arminians reject limited atonement, it's not because they believe in unlimited atonement. <laughs> All right? Everyone limits the atonement because the atonement is either limited in its extent to whom it's applied or it's limited in its effectiveness. Okay, it's either you, you either limit it in its extent or you limit it in its effectiveness. So you either say that the atonement is, a, is accomplished and applied only to a, a, a select number of people, or you say it, the atonement is sort of 
made available to everybody, but is only affected by those, it's only effective by those who have faith, who, who, who take it and, and, and rest in it. So both Calvinist Arminians limit the atonement in some way, despite the Arminian view of a universal atonement. So like I said, Calvinists limit the atonement in its extent. Christ died to accomplish an actual atonement for the elect. He died to accomplish an actual atonement for the elect. And that's why I wanted you to turn to John chapter 10. So I'm just going to start reading in chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, just to give you a little context running up to it. So John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus' teaching says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father." So there, in that passage where Jesus talks about himself being the door to the sheepfold and being the great shepherd of the sheep, um, you kind of get two I am statements. They're kind of wrapped up in one chapter. But here Jesus is talking about how he knows his sheep by name. They hear his voice. They follow him. They, the sheep do not follow a stranger because they do not recognize the voice of a stranger. But they recognize the voice of the shepherd. So they follow the shepherd and they go where he goes and he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, the ones whom the Father has given to me, the, one for, you know, the ones whom I know by name, 
Those are the sheep I lay my life down for, Jesus says. So the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. Matthew 1.21, where we, you know, that's during the birth of Jesus, and he is called Jesus, we're told by the angel, he is called Jesus, his name will be Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, he will save his people from their sins. In John 19, verse 30, when Christ dies on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. It is finished. It is accomplished. Atonement is done. Now, if you were to be an Arminian, Jesus would not be able to say it is finished. He would have to say, it is made available. <laughs> right? I died, and now it is made available. Atonement is made available. Come and receive atonement. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say it is made available. He says it is finished. I have accomplished the work that it was, was given to me to do. Atonement has been made. Atonement was finished. It was actually accomplished there on the cross. Now the Arminians, like I said, they also limit the atonement, but they limit its effectiveness. So Christ did not actually accomplish atonement for anyone, but rather made atonement possible for all people. That's where they get that version of universalism, okay? That universal atonement is made available to all people. However, I think this does damage to the passage cited above in John chapter 10, in John chapter 19, in other places where we see that the atonement was accomplished, that Christ laid his life down for his sheep. He didn't, like I said, he didn't make atonement available. He made it accomplished. He did it. It is finished. It is done. How can Christ be said to have laid down his life for his people uh, if he only died to make salvation possible for all people? How can Christ say it is finished when all he actually did was to make it possible? And furthermore, since most Arminians are not actual universalists, they must acknowledge that even though Christ died to make atonement possible for all people, not all people will be saved. And this leaves open the possibility because they also believe that you can fall away from salvation. That's the last point. The P in tulip is perseverance of the saints. They believe that a, a believer can fall away from salvation. So if that's possible, then you can actually have the possibility that Jesus Christ died for no one. Because he died, he didn't, make an, he didn't actually accomplish atonement. And if no one believes, or if people believe and they all fall away, then heaven will be empty. It'll just be God and Jesus and the Spirit, and it'll be like, I tried, I, I, did, I did my best. That's what God would say. I did my best. I tried. No one came to faith, or they came to faith and they all fell away. Oh well. We'll just try, we'll try again next time. We'll try to do better next time. We'll do another creation and we'll try it again. No, that's, that's, that's foolishness in my, in my opinion. It is foolishness. So 
I have to ask the question then, what sounds more biblical? That Christ died to actually save his people, the people whom the Father had chosen from before the foundation of the world, or Christ died to actually save no one, but to make salvation possible for everyone? I'll go with the first option. That's, that's, that's my vote. <laughs> okay. In case you were wondering, my vote is on the first option. That Christ actually died to save his people. And that, the, that those, those whom the Father had chosen, Christ died for them. Okay? Again, you see the Trinitarian nature here of, of our salvation. Right, The Father chooses. The Father selects, if you will, a bride for his Son. And then the Son pays the bride price, in a sense, by dying for them, to purchase them, to redeem them. And then the Spirit, what the Spirit does is He takes that work that Christ has done for them and applies it to our lives. And you know, so the Spirit will do the calling, the Spirit will do the justifying, the Spirit will do the sanctifying, the Spirit will do the preserving, and the Spirit will eventually, you know, will be glorified at some point. So it's a very Trinitarian um, view here of salvation. But that Christ died to save His people, the ones whom the Father had given to Him. Because the other one says that Christ, again, died to save no one except to make salvation possible for everyone. Alright, so in the time that remains, there's a couple of objections to limited atonement. Um, because people will say, well, what about verses like John 3.16? Everyone knows John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, Right? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God loves the world. He loves the whole world. He gave his son that if anybody in the whole world believes in his son, they will have everlasting life. They will not perish. They will have everlasting life. Or you can look at verse, you know, a verse like in the book of 1 John, his first epistle, 1 John 2, verse 2. which says, and he, that is Jesus, he himself is the propitiation, the atonement, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And that's, so, I mean, that seems even more damning, because here you've got Jesus, you know, John, the same guy who wrote the chapter on the Good Shepherd, is saying that Jesus is the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, obviously, it boils down to how do you understand the word world? Because if you understand the word world as every man, woman, child who has ever lived, will live, or is living now, and if you say that Jesus Christ was propitiation for the whole world, what does that make you? Makes you a universalist. (laughs) 
Jesus atoned for everybody. That means everybody's sins have been atoned for. No one's going to hell. Now, does that track biblically? Was it? There are denominations that teach that, yeah. I had a good friend of mine who was a universalist. We got into quite a few discussions about that. Um, does that track biblically? No, it doesn't track biblically. I mean, just think of Jesus talking in Matthew 25 when he's talking about the sheep and the goats. He's, he says right there, there are some that are going to go to heaven and there are some that are going to go to hell. All right, so if Jesus Christ was a propitiation for the whole world, and you understand world as every man, woman, child who has lived, is living, or ever will live, then you will be a universalist. It, more, it makes much more sense to see the world not as every single individual who's ever lived, is living, or will live, but as in all kinds of people. Okay, think about how... From the Jewish mind, from the Jewish perspective, they saw the world as you are a Jew or you're everybody else, okay? You're a Jew or you're everybody else. That was how the Jewish mindset looked at, Jew and Gentile. So when we see world, we have to, we have to understand what John is using this, world, this word world for. He's saying it's not just Jews, when he says that God so loved the world, he's not, he, what he's basically saying is God doesn't just love Jews. He loves people of all kinds. He loves people of all kinds. And, the, and, and when John, in 1 John 2, 2 says that he is propitiation not only for our sins, but for the world, he's saying not just for Jews, but for, for its you know, propitiation is open to anybody who believes. Anybody, all kinds of people from, from all walks of life, tri- uh, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? That is, that is what we see, you know, we've seen this in Revelation chapter 7, right? When the, the multitude is standing there before the throne, you get people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not just Jewish people, but God has selected, elected from all kinds of people in the world, so those objections don't really hold water when you compare them to other teachings in the Bible and when you understand how John uses the word world. What's that? Cosmos. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the typical... I mean, it's, 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 it's a word in Greek that has a lot of range of meanings. You know, it can mean wor- world is in the globe... It can mean world is in all the people in the world. It can mean world is in all of creation. You know, it's, it's one of those words that's got, depending on context, it's got all kinds of meanings to it. Um, I'm going to stop here, but I will, uh, if there are any questions, I'll take some questions on this.